I invite you to turn with me in your Bible this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to be having a very short uh, four-part Christmas sermon series as uh, we spend this morning and this evening and then next Sunday morning and evening in Matthew's Gospel, looking at Matthew's telling of the Christmas story. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew, if you remember, is writing to a Jewish audience, and, and so he begins in a very Jewish way, as we'll notice uh, in the message this morning. The genealogy, uh, that might throw you off a little bit, but as, you, as we read this and as I stumble through the names, just remember that what uh, Matthew is doing is just rooting the story of Christ in the reality of human history, that this is not a, a, a religious tale, it's not a spiritual myth, uh, but that what Matthew has to tell us is uh, saturated with the reality of human history, and, and he presents Jesus Christ as the, the fulfillment of that history. And so let's give our attention to God's Word. We're going to read the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1. <clears throat> the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nishan, and Nishan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So, so Matthew has brought us from the beginning of the uh, Jewish nation in Abraham to the pinnacle in David. That's the first section. And then the second session, the history of Israel and a very troubled, sin-filled history it was until they are finally brought into the Babylonian captivity. And after their departure to Babylon, Jeconiah the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God, our Father, we thank you for this wonderful announcement of the Messiah, the Christ, and we thank you for the way that Matthew tells the story and for the truths that it contains, and give us ears to hear it this morning, hearts to receive it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
When we think of the Christmas story, if I asked you to uh, tell me the Christmas story, uh, your version would probably be Luke's version. You'd probably tell me about the angel coming to Mary, and you'd talk to me about um, the shepherds on the hillside keeping watch over their flocks by night, and the, the choirs, the angel choirs uh, announcing glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. Um, that's sort of the story as we think of it often and, and remember it. It's, it's, very, it's a wonderful story. It's very robust, very memorable. And um, in most of the Christmas programs, you see, that's the story that's acted out. Well, Matthew tells the story in a different way. And I, I like Matthew's version for a variety of reasons. Uh, first, I like Matthew's story just because of who Matthew is. Matthew, is, um, Matthew was a miserable mess of a man. Uh, every self-respecting Jewish person in Jerusalem would have been convinced that there was a very special place in hell for men like Matthew. Men who sold their soul for Roman wealth, who betrayed their country and their God just to get rich. Matthew was a tax collector, a wretched man. No, uh, no self-respecting Jew would have called Matthew a friend. And, and, and yet, to the astonishment of all and the derision of many, Jesus calls Matthew to be one of his special disciples specifically calls Matthew. It wasn't like Matthew came crawling up begging and Jesus, well, I guess so. Jesus sought him out and called Matthew, the tax collector, this vile man who was ripe for damnation. Jesus calls Matthew to be his disciple. It's a stunning display of the grace of God and, and one I'm sure that Matthew delighted in being a display of that grace. And now Matthew testifies to that grace and, uh, and shows how Jesus the Christ is both the long-awaited Messiah, the King of kings, and yet this King would also be a sacrifice for sinners. And so that's the story that Matthew wants to tell. Matthew's account... Uh, I love for how bold and forthright it is. Remember, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, and he is, right from the beginning, completely clear, explicit about what he's going to tell them. Um, there's no subtlety here. He's going to tell them about the Jewish Messiah. That's how it begins. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Messiah. That's the story. Uh, Luke's target, if you remember, is to a Gentile audience. And so Luke is talking about uh, Roman rulers, right? Quirinius and Caesar and a census that all need to be enrolled. And, and, and he's putting the story in the context of a Gentile world, a Gentile understanding. Well, Matthew doesn't do any of that. He's writing to his own countrymen, his cousins. And he doesn't say a word about Caesar, but, but sets the, the birth narrative in the context of redemptive history in the context of Old Testament history and explains how this Jesus from Nazareth is truly the son of David and the son of Abraham. The first Jewish man, Abraham, the greatest Jewish king, David, and he makes it explicitly clear that this man, this person, Jesus of Nazareth, is the fulfillment of all Old Testament history, the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. 
It's a, it's a stunning announcement. We're used to the story. Imagine being a first century Jew, uh, Jewish man, and, and you're told this for the first time. Well, if you believed it, you would be overwhelmed with joy. But the, the most typical reaction certainly would have been cynicism, some skepticism. Particularly if you knew Jesus. And if you knew how he was born, and, and, you, and you understood how he lived his life and, and how he died, right? This would be a hard pill to swallow, as it, we find it through history it was for most Jews. And yet, and yet Matthew magnifies the hidden glory of Jesus by talking about his lineage, by talking about his titles, by talking about um, even the, the scandal in his past. And so we're going to be looking at then Jesus as Matthew reveals him to us. First looking at the titles that belong to Jesus. And then we'll look at the, uh, the, how Matthew structures the story to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament history. And then Jesus as a savior of sinners. Let's look first at Jesus' messianic titles. Uh, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, Messiah, son of David and the son of Abraham. There's no subtlety here. Matthew starts right out. I'm talking to you about the Messiah, the one you've been waiting for. The son of David is probably the most explicit and most well-known messianic title um, in the Bible. So the average Jewish person, if you said son of David, they know who you're talking about. You're talking about the one that God promised to David, the king who's going to come and restore Israel and throw off Roman bondage and make Israel the great nation in the world and an eternal kingdom. That's what the Messiah is going to do. When in Luke 18, if you remember the story of Jesus on his way to Jericho, and there was a blind beggar on the side of the road. And the blind beggar uh, heard that Jesus was passing by, and he began, he began to cry out to Jesus. Uh, do you remember what he said? Jesus! Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. This blind man, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knew exactly who Jesus was. And he, and he uses this messianic title to call out for Jesus to come and have mercy on him. Well, this title, the Son of David, goes back to a promise that God gave to David back in 1 Chronicles 17 where we read in verses 11 through 14 that God says to David, let me read it for you, when your days are over and you go to be with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. <clears throat> he is the one who will build a house for me and will establish his throne forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor, Saul. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. Now there are two um, objects in view, persons in view here in a sense. The, the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy would be Solomon. Solomon was going to build the temple. And God was going to make Solomon great. But we realize that Solomon didn't have an eternal kingdom or an eternal throne um, that is only fulfilled in 
Christ. And, and the Jews understood this, that, that yes, this is Solomon, but there's more here than, than Solomon. They're looking for this eternal king who's going to establish an eternal kingdom and who's going to build the house of God. What does Jesus say um, when Peter makes the great confession, you are the Christ, right? And, and Jesus says, on this rock, I will do what? I will build my church. Jesus is precisely the one who's going to build the house of God, and he's building that house of God today all over the world. Jesus is the full fulfillment here. And so you see there's a, uh, as the Jewish nation languishes under Roman oppression, they're longing for this great king to come. When will the Messiah come? It's been 400 years since there's been a prophet God has not spoken for 400 years. What's happened? Has God forgotten us? Has God abandoned us? So just just think of the drama of Matthew's announcement. He just points to Jesus and says, Israel, behold your king, your Messiah. This is the one. This is the one that God has promised. This is the son of David. Everything that God promised to David and to us through the Messiah, it's all now coming to fulfillment. He's here. It's it's a magnificent announcement. And Matthew adds another title to help us understand this coming one, the son of Abraham. Back in Genesis 22, if you remember the story there, boys and girls, remember the story when uh, Abraham was told to sacrifice his son Isaac, his only son, uh, the, the son of promise, and Abraham obeyed. Abraham went up on the mountain, and as they're going up, Isaac says, Father, we got the wood, where's the lamb? And Abraham replies, the Lord will provide which is exactly what God did. God provided a ram, a sign of what was yet to come. Later in the chapter, same chapter, but God, having spared Isaac's life and commended Abram for his faith, God now gives Abram a promise of another future son. Verse 18, through your offspring, singular, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Paul makes a point of this. Uh, in one of his letters, I believe Galatians, where Paul says that God promises Abraham a seed, singular. And that God spoke the gospel to Abraham in this. That God promises an offspring, a seed of Abraham, through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. And, and Matthew now just says, this is, this is the guy. <laughs> this is him. This is the one that God promised to Abraham. The Savior of the whole world. He is not only the promised king of the Jews, but the promised sacrifice for the blessing of all the nations. In Jesus, Old Testament prophecy, Old Testament promise have given way to flesh and blood. He's, he's here. Faith is replaced with sight. Jesus, the Messiah of God, has come. It's a a startling message if you're a first century Jew. Matthew goes on and reveals the glory of Jesus as he structures the genealogy. Um, This is a genealogy with an agenda. You've noticed that there were 14 names and three, so three lists of 14 names. Well, Matthew did that on purpose. 
Um, he had to leave out some names in order to get to his 3 and, uh, and 14. So he had to leave out like four kings in the second paragraph, the second list. Four kings just had to move them aside because he, needed, he wanted to get to his number 14. Now Matthew knows that um, his audience, they're not ignorant. They're going to recognize, wait a minute, what about so-and-so and so-and-so? But you see, Matthew is telling the story in a way that a Jewish mind would understand. Uh, they would know exactly what he's doing. He's, he's, he's teaching a theology here, not just a chronology. Matthew's making a point. He's, he wants us to understand something. And for that, we just have to take a quick look into the meaning of numbers. Um, why 14 times 3? Well, um, 14 has meaning because it's, it's 7 times 2. 7, as you know, is the number of full perfection. It's the sum of 3, which is fullness, and 4, which is completeness, right? The four corners of the earth. And 7, then, is the, is the number of, of perfection. And Matthew has 7 times 2, double perfection, and times 3. So, so the point he's just making is, there's, Jesus is the utter, absolute completion of Old Testament history. It's, it's perfectly completed and fulfilled in Christ. There's nothing left. Once you get to Jesus, Old Testament prophecy and promise has come to its fulfillment. There's not a something else, a something more. There's another way of looking at this. Um, 14 times 3 is, of course, 42. Some of you math people are... You love that question? Four, uh, seven times, the same as seven times six. Seven, the number of fullness. Six, the number of incomplete. It's not quite there. It's almost there. So you see, what Matthew is, is saying is, is that you have the Old Testament, which is seven times six, waiting for Jesus, who is the seventh seven. He's the, he's the completion of it. Does that make sense? So that in Jesus Christ, all the works, all the words of God in the Old Testament are finally realized and finally accomplished. As F. Dale Bruner says, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament is trying to say. Jesus is the word that makes those words make sense. It's exactly the case. Just think of the significance of that. He's the fulfillment of human history. The, the very meaning of history is found in Jesus Christ. Let me just give you a comparison to, to help grasp that. So you maybe have heard this past week that Time Magazine announced their Person of the Year Award. Uh, so this is the person that Time Magazine considers uh, the most influential person in the entire world over the past 12 months. So um, these are the people that matter who shape our world. Uh, nominees included Vladimir Putin, King Charles, and uh, Xi Jinping. But you know who won? Some of you do. Taylor Swift. All right. There's a whole other sermon probably on what that means for our society. It's not, it's not good. But the, um, I don't scoff at that. Rather her than Putin, right? Uh, but it just highlights, you think of all these names, 
They're, it's all grass. Man is like grass. And the most influential people, Time, person, you know, Time Magazine Person of the Year Award, grass. Just grass. And the grass withers, and the flowers do what? The flowers fade. Here today, gone tomorrow. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And Jesus is the word. Jesus endures forever. And he's not simply the most influential person in the history of mankind. He is the producer of the history of mankind. We're going to to look at that more tonight. He writes the history of mankind. He is the meaning of the history of mankind. And Matthew just wants to press home that in Jesus Christ, history has come to its point, its purpose. All of history is under his authority. All of it serves his glorious redemptive purposes. Israel, behold, your king, Messiah. But then Matthew also wants us to understand that this is a king of grace, and that's revealed in the shameful lineage. This lineage, again, would be astonishing to a Jewish reader. First of all, that there's women in it, four of them. Um, lineages, genealogies didn't have women in them unless those women somehow would um, enhance the dignity of the line, somehow uh, assure the purity, right, of the genealogy. But these women obviously don't do either of that. In fact, they, they're scandals, each one of them in their own, in their own way. Um, first of all, they're all Gentiles. Gentile women in the genealogy of the Jewish Messiah. This is not how it's supposed to be in a, in a Jewish mind. Tamar is a Canaanite. Rahab is from Jericho. Ruth is a Moabite. Bathsheba is a Hittite, if not by birth, at least then by marriage. Bruner again says, most genealogies in, in the Old Testament period have the express purpose of showing that a line has been kept pure from Gentile contamination. That's why you have the list. But this first genealogy of the New Testament shows us that the line that led from Abraham to Jesus was intersected again and again by Gentile blood. You see, Matthew makes the point that Jesus is not only the Messiah for the Jews, but the Savior for all the world. He came for sinners from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And that's the other point about these ladies. They are all ladies, women who are defined by shame and sexual sin. All of them. Tamar tricked her father-in-law into giving her an heir by dressing as a prostitute and sleeping with him. Rahab was a prostitute by profession, living in the walls of Jericho. Bathsheba was most likely an unwilling participant in King David's adultery. But as any survivor of rape understands, the act covered her with shame nonetheless. Ruth is a Moabite. The product of an incestuous act when Lot's daughters made him drunk and slept with him. And so these ladies are not just sinners in a sort of a generic sense. They are sinners sinners who are robed with scandal and shame. And that's just the case with humanity, right? Uh, Humanity is covered with shame. We see that from the very beginning when Adam and Eve fell into sin and suddenly they realized they're naked and they were ashamed. And shame covers the human race. And the presence of these four women is, 
Well, it's made all the more noticeable. It's all the more prominent. It's really in your face because of the absence of four other women. The Jews had four matriarchs, four women of nobility that they revered. It would be Sarah, the wife of Abraham, Rebecca, the wife of Isaac, and then Rachel and Leah, the wives of Jacob. These are the model Jewish women, matriarchs of the Old Testament. But Matthew gives the New Testament church four new matriarchs. All once robed in shame, all now robed with honor and glory as those used by God to bring Jesus Christ the Messiah into the world. It is just a magnificent story. The grace of God in full display. Martin Luther says, Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. In fact, he puts them in his family tree. And that's the story that Matthew wants to tell. It's a story about a king who came to die. Matthew tells that in his own way. You might have noticed um, that when Matthew talks about the titles, it's Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's got the order reversed. Um, It it would have been made more chronological sense that Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David. So why does he reverse it? Uh, Dr. Burnham says this, Matthew begins in reverse... Because he is telling the story of one that was born a king, son of David, yet a king to be sacrificed, son of Abraham. The genealogy prepares you to recognize Jesus Christ as the king who will end on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for sinners. That's the glory of our Jesus. That's the beauty of Jesus. That little baby born to Mary is in truth the king of heaven, the king of kings who came to this earth expressly to give his life so that sinners like you and me could be forgiven, could be made children of God, friends of God, heirs of everlasting life. That's why he came. It's not just a sentimental story about a cute little baby born in a little manger. right? It, this is the story that, on, on which human history depends. This is the story upon which your eternal destiny depends. Because you, you and I are going to see him and we're going to answer to him. He is the king of history. And he lives and reigns right now at the right hand of God. And, and your life is determined by your relationship to this Jesus, the Messiah. Your life and your destiny are determined by it. The, the beauty of Christmas, you see, is that this, this matters ultimately for you, for me, for the whole world. This is a story unlike every other story that brings life, everlasting life, to people who are in death, in the bondage to death. This is a story that brings life to those who believe it. There's no other story in the world that does this. But this is why he came. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Friend, is that you today? Do you have this life, this true life, everlasting life, reconciled with God, forgiven of all your sins, adopted as a child of God, justified by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, being sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit, confident one day you will be glorified in the presence of Jesus? Is that your story? I pray it is my story by grace and grace alone and if it's not your story this morning it can be 
Because the same grace is available to you. And Jesus was born for you. Only believe is what Jesus says. Let's press this truth into the reality of our life as we, as we leave here and live this week. What difference will this make in, in how you think and what you say, how you relate to people? What difference will it make that you have been made a brand new person by this Jesus, this Messiah, and that this Jesus is writing the story of your life and this Jesus will meet you at the end and say, well done, welcome home. What difference will it make in your life today? May it fill your life with joy and peace and hope. May God grant it, amen. Father, we thank you for Jesus, the Savior of sinners like us. We were not worthy. We weren't even asking. And yet you so loved us, you gave Jesus Christ for us. And I just thank you that this Jesus is the most precious, beautiful figure in all of human history. He's worthy of all glory and praise. This is the light that is shown in the darkness. The darkness has not comprehended it and has not overcome it. The light shines. And Father, I pray that light would be evident in our lives as we, as we believe in this Jesus, as we, as we love him, the Savior of sinners, the King who gave his life for us. May that change how we think and feel and act and speak so that, Lord, our, our hearts and hopes are set on, on Jesus and the day that we will see him face to face. May God give us in that his peace. Amen. Let's respond to God's word this morning, singing Light of the World. Let's stand together and sing.
Amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face, his light to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. Give you his peace. To Christ come again. Amen. Amen.